May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So what would you do if Jesus came to you seeking to be baptized? Of course, I would protest the inappropriateness of the proposal. I would have the same response as John. I'm the one who needs to be baptized, not you. What business do I have participating in such holy work? But Jesus said, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. I remember the first baptism I did as a new rector, my first time being rector, which was on the Sunday of the baptism of our Lord, which is also our family baptismal day. I was baptized then, my brother, uh, my daughter, Annalise, but not all on the same day, the same time. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite times to be in church and to celebrate my one of my favorite feasts. That day brings to mind what John the baptizer and we perceive as the inappropriateness of baptizing Jesus. The importance of beautiful worship and attentive ministry to the poor stressed in Anglo-Catholicism are what particularly appealed to me in that ministry setting. We were believers in worshiping the Lord and the beauty of holiness. And so no one imagines an Anglo-Catholic church doing an immersion baptism. <laughs> what with our sun masks, candles, incense, exquisite vestments, all manner of servers all over the place, and a cloud, of course, of incense, especially on that day. But on the Sunday before, we were on the hunt for a baptismal pool. There was a congregation that had been using our building for a time, and and they said that we could borrow their baptismal pool, but then, um, you know, we're there waiting and getting things ready. And then they called nonchalantly, very late in the morning, to tell us. And actually, I think we called them and asked them, so where's the pool? They said, oh, we don't have it. <laughs> yeah. So on the phone, we were, you know, we were on the phone and in cars for about, for at least five hours. And we searched the city to find an appropriate pool. And just when we were about to give up, the president of the altar guild and I had the same idea. She had been one of the people out in the car, and she called from Lowe's, and I was calling her to say, hey, you should go to Lowe's. <laughs> but she, she had found two pools, and her question to me was, should I get the big one or the little one? Well, the young man being baptized was over six feet tall, so of course, the big one. And she was glad that I chose what she wanted as well. And by the time she got back to the church, it was after 5 p.m. But the group of us who were preparing for Sunday couldn't be more happy washing out that pool in the dark, in the dead of winter. And it 
was a sight to behold as we put it in place because it was surrounded by blazing red poinsettia plants. It looked like it was on fire. This is at least a six foot or so pool and it was just ringed with the poinsettias. We were filled with anticipation about what would take place the next day. There was a very different feeling Sunday morning as the eight o'clock crowd showed up. I was met with disapproval and questions about the appropriateness of immersion baptism. How dare I do something in such an undignified way? Episcopalians don't do immersion baptism. And I took the bait of being shamed for not being good enough to be a priest because I didn't know the proper way Episcopalians do things. Never mind the fact that I was raised by an Episcopal priest. But I could prove my rightness and my knowledge by showing the page where our Book of Common Prayer calls for immersion as the first choice. And you can look it up. I don't remember the page anymore. And it's clear. It says, and that's what we learned in seminary, right? It says, you know, whatever comes first is what you should do. And why no one ever does that, I don't know. And one woman even told me, I'm glad I won't be here to see that. Hmm. There was no concern as to whether what we were doing would be pleasing to God or if it was God's will. There was no joy that we were supporting a new member, a young man on his faith journey, or excitement that we were even having a baptism since it had been quite a while since they had one. There was no satisfaction and sense of fulfilling our purpose of the Great Commission to baptize and make disciples. As I talked the young man through how we would do the baptism, he asked me, Shannon, are you sure you want to do this? You know I'm going to make the water dirty. And as he joked with me, I could also sense the seriousness of his feelings of unworthiness. After the early morning altercation, I had a tinge of doubt. Am I even worthy enough to baptize this young man? Can we be the community of faith he needs? He and I had never done this before. We waded into the pool. Using the perfect formulary of the Trinity, I buried him in the water, and he rose a new man. And despite the messiness of being human, signified by wet vestments, and they were antiques as well, and water was everywhere, including dripping from the young man and from the eyes of the onlookers. In this moment of perfection, none of us could ever create on our own. There was no denying that we were on holy ground doing holy things. That moment made us feel the anticipation of new life springing up in our community of faith. This is what it felt like to act on God's invitation to live the truth of our holiness. God's invitation to live in the freedom of being and making the body of Christ. Is it appropriate for such ordinary people uh, that we could do such holy things? Certainly not by, world, by the world's standards, but that day, 
I know we were the delight of God's life. We would not always be so excited about our life together as a body of Christ. As you know, the church is made up of people trying to move together in one direction while we contend with all the ways our world, of our world that make it hard for us to join Jesus' command to baptize and make disciples. How many times do you see others doing what you think are amazing things and compare yourself thinking, that could never be me? We hear of the faith and spiritual greatness of biblical characters and think we could never be them as faithful, as impressive, or on their level. Ah, the human condition. We are hard on ourselves, and at the very same time, we set our expectations low and join in the devaluing of others and making ourselves and others small. Our society has all kinds of ideas and policies that constantly tell us who is valuable, worthy of esteem and consideration. How many times have you heard, you are not enough, you're not important, there isn't enough, you don't have enough education, aren't the right race, gender, sexual orientation or marital status, or whatever. And after hearing about your inadequacies enough, one begins to believe it, to live life as if this is true and held back by so many if-onlys. God does not want us to be imprisoned by a mentality of scarcity and mediocrity. We need validation and approval based on the truth and love of God, which is steadfast and unchanging. John, the baptizer, heard plenty of messages about his worth in his day. True, he had disciples who hung on his every word. And he seemed to be very confident of his mission to call people to repentance, but this does not mean he was well respected. In the passages preceding today's reading, John very pointedly chastises the Pharisees and Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers. At some point, I imagine he wondered if he had been too harsh or cruel. Was this a way to speak to another child of God who came to him to be baptized? And would he have responded in a meaningful way if he were spoken to in such a way? And perhaps he felt just as unworthy of God's approval as he claimed the people he chastised were. And then here comes Jesus, asking him to baptize him. No, there was no way he could baptize Jesus. He was not worthy. But John remembered the stories his mother told him about how he leaped in her womb when he heard the voice of the Savior's mother. Even as a baby in his mother's womb, John was proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He could prepare and point others towards Jesus, but how could he have such proximity and participation in this much holiness? It's just not right, he thought. Little did he know that to proclaim Jesus as Savior means to accept one's 
holiness, to participate in acknowledging others' holiness, and to bask in God's delight. And once John stopped second-guessing Jesus and consented to do God's will, and this is taken from the message translation, it is written, the moment Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit of voice, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. God's, God's voice of approval lets us know that the act of baptism is holy and pleasing to the divine. It is an action that not only elicits God's approval, but it is also the way the body of Christ takes form, the way it is embodied. Unless we become tempted to listen to the world or our own assessment of our worth or the appropriateness of our dabbling in holy things, it is God who makes us holy. The intentions of heart, consent, and hands of imperfect people, water, and the Holy Spirit in union are what is pleasing to God and makes us God's delight. Who are we to question what, what God takes delight in? We are God's own, chosen and marked by God's love, the delight of God's life. Through Jesus' baptism, we have been invited to consent to make people, to making people and this world holy. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. These, the first words Jesus speaks in this gospel, are an indication of the importance of baptism and the embodied way we are to live our lives as a body of Christ. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. It would not be enough to simply say, baptize and make disciples. Jesus had to show us the way to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is not about perfection, but it is about the continual process of growing and the ability to do God's will. We are a people who like signs and omens. But what we need are examples and models to show us what, show us, um, what we can be and who we can be. And Jesus showed us that righteousness involves committing ourselves, mind, spirit, and body, to join God in the work of creating a just world. Do we dare to believe we are the ones who God is, in, is trusting to reconcile the world. If we, like John, would take the risk and baptize, imagine what the world would be. Maybe we don't have the opportunity to bring people to the waters of baptism, but perhaps if we are looking and open for opportunities, we can immerse people in our world in holiness. Sometimes it's just as simple as letting our words and actions tell someone that they are the delight of God's life. 
So my prayer is that we would daily consent to God's invitation to holiness, say yes to our righteousness, and that we would be excited by our call as God's holy people, expectant and full as if pregnant with anticipation. May we be encouraged and more brave every time we ponder the enormity of what we've been called to and invigorated by the divine gaze of delight. May we live knowing this is what righteousness feels like. It is not a revelatory arrival at knowing it all, but instead a realization of the grace of not needing to be more than who you are, God's own, chosen and marked by God's love, the delight of God's life. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness.